This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Mark Fiore, Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Media Matters, The Majority Report, The Progressive, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Comedian Lee Camp. Why are so many central bankers, politicians, and pundits admiring austerity wonderfulness? Because of Great Latvia Success Story. You can be this too. Latvia growth of economy shows world big austerity works. 5.5% growth, success. Before you become austerity success like Latvia, you must chop, chop, chop economy like fat beat of too much luxury. Latvia economy contracts in painful depression when banks gorge like sick pig. But strong Latvian people take pain for pig. First, you must suffer, not be crybaby. You take pain of 20% unemployment like Latvia. Now, unemployment only? 15% success. Latvia economy even better after hundreds of thousands unemployed leave country. Make job numbers improve. See? Austerity cuts. Success. And you can too. Cut that government luxury excess like school, fire, safety. You can be success like strong Latvia. It's like you jump from cliff and suffer much. Then rise up 5.5% above crater. Success. Much pleasure through pain in Great Latvia Success Story. Yeah, you can all be Latvia. It's good, yeah? Someone pacing round and round In circles on the floor of love Oh, we can still afford to not make sense at all Parliamentary elections in Greece saw the conservative-leaning New Democracy Party win a narrow victory over the left-wing anti-austerity Syriza coalition. This was good news for an array of major players who prefer Greece to stick to the current punishing bailout plan arranged by European countries. But ABC World News anchor Diane Sawyer showed what angle mattered most when she led a June 18th report on the election results this way. Now we move on to your money and the momentary sigh of relief for every American with a 401k. The voters of Greece this weekend decided to stay the course in Europe, sparing the U.S. stock market and those around the globe a wild upheaval. The Dow closed down just 25 points today. So the first order of business is how the election impacts American retirement investments. This has actually been a recurring theme on ABC's newscast when it comes to the European financial crisis, with every new development in Greece, Spain, or France reported as if one of the main concerns is how relatively well-to-do investors in America might fare. A June 11th report warned that if the leftists won in Greece on Sunday, quote, by Monday, U.S. stocks would plummet, hurting your 401k, close quote. We know that a corporate media system prioritizes the needs and interests of certain viewers. The outlets need to pretend that that's not really the way things works. The news is for everyone. 
But when you present political developments around the world primarily through the lens of how they affect well-to-do investors, you're sort of giving away the game. That's a clip, of course, from the Christmas time classic, It Is a Wonderful Life. But it's also a time capsule to look back at the Great Depression. Frank Capra released It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. That means he shot it in the early to mid-1940s, just a few years after the end of the Great Depression. He remembered what it looked like, in other words. It had just happened. And that clip was what a lot of it actually looked like to ordinary Americans. That is a bank run. And the Great Depression had a lot of those. A, a bank run is a self-fulfilling collapse of confidence. People, for whatever reason, maybe a rumor, maybe an actual global financial crisis, become worried that the bank won't have enough money to pay them back. It won't be able to give them their money. And so they run to take it out of the bank. But banks aren't like a giant safe where everyone's money sits. A lot of the money at any given time is loaned out. Here's Jimmy Stewart explaining why his bank couldn't give everyone their money back. I'll take mine now. No, but you're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and a hundred others. And so whether the bank run was justified in the first place, the fact of a bank run makes the fears valid. It makes them real. Even if everything at the bank had been just fine, now the bank can't pay everyone back because they never expect everyone to demand their money back all at once. And so the bank collapses. That'd be bad enough, but bank runs trigger other bank runs. They are contagious. People in the next town over hear about the bank collapsing, and they worry that's going to happen to them, too. And so they run to get their money out of the bank, taking down another bank and taking down another and another. The United States used to have a lot of bank runs, but after the Great Depression, we ended them once and for all. FDR created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The FDIC insures all bank deposits even today. If your bank collapses, the government gives you your money back. And so we don't have bank runs anymore. What's going on in Europe right now is a bank run with a twist. It's a country run. The run began with Greece. They lied about their budget situation. Turned out they were deep, 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 deep into debt. But at the beginning, this didn't scare investors too much. They thought the Eurozone had an FDIC. They thought the European Central Bank or rich countries like Germany would always make sure they got their money back. But they were wrong. So there's a run now on Greece. The run is partly in the financial markets, where investors don't want to loan them money, and partly in their actual banks, where, the or where ordinary Greeks took out 700 million euros on Monday alone. But Greece is tiny, so who cares if it defaults? Well, you have to think back to the terrifying logic of bank runs. If one indebted European country goes down, will the next? And that's the worry. If Greece can fall to a run, what about Portugal? 
or Ireland or Spain or Italy. Today, Paul Krugman wrote in the New York Times, quote, suddenly it has become easy to see how the euro, that grand flawed experiment in monetary union without political union, could come apart at the seams. We're not talking about a distant prospect either. Things could fall apart with stunning speed in a matter of months, not years. And the cost, both economic and arguably even more important, political, could be huge. Joining us now is Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winning economist and Princeton professor of economics and international affairs, and the author of End This Depression Now, his new book, which I have read, which is fantastic and which you should all read. Thank you for being here, Paul. Okay. Hi. Hi. So first, because you are smarter than me and you know this issue better than me, are there any corrections or clarifications? Did I horribly mislead the audience about what's going on in Europe? The one thing I would say is that this is not Jimmy Stewart's bank. Uh, this is the, the trouble is that that there are real problems. That it's not just that there's a crisis of confidence, though that's happening too. It is that Greece is probably fundamentally incapable of paying, and unless there's a change in European policy, so are Spain and Italy. So this is there is a, a panic, but it's a panic on top of an underlying problem of bad policies, not so much on the part of the Southern Europe. Europeans, Greeks on the, the Greeks accepted, but on the part of Europe as a whole. So this is, this isn't just a matter of calming things down. They've got to change things in a much more fundamental way. What happens to us if the euro falls apart? If Greece has to leave in a disorderly way, and then we see bank runs and they're not, I'm sorry, country runs and they're not able to stop them? Okay. So the first question is, where does it stop? Is it if it's just Greece, then that's bad but but it can be contained if it spreads the the worry is that this is going to take out Spain Italy Portugal um, which will happen if the European Central Bank doesn't provide you know trillions of euros of cash and if they don't at the same time say okay you know enough with this austerity business we're gonna provide some growth so that you can grow your way out of this if that doesn't happen then the whole euro breaks up then two things happen it's going to be bad for the European economy at least initially it's going to be a hit to the economy, which is going to hit U.S. exports, which is serious because we do export a lot, but not that much. We only sell about 2% of what we make to Europe, so that's manageable. The question is, does this then spread to where it disrupts financial markets here, too? Do we, does this turn into a super version of the fall of Lehman Brothers? And I guess I think that's not going to happen. I think that the European Central Bank can contain that bit. I think the Federal Reserve can probably contain it here. I wish I was 100% certain of that. Um, I'm, I'm talking along here, but the last thing to say is this, the political consequences. I mean, mm -hmm. Europe, the European project, Europe as a place of prosperity, peace, and democracy, that's a crucial part of this world we're living in. If that falls apart, boy, it's going to be an uncomfortable place for the next generation. One thing that I think has been somewhat confusing to people, uh, you've been talking a lot about how in order to let, in order to get past this crisis, Germany and the European Central Bank need to become a little bit more comfortable with inflation. I think folks normally think of inflation as always and everywhere bad. So how would inflation help? What would that do? It's, okay, the most important thing right now is that for, there, there was a, a huge bubble. Not so different, actually, from the bubbles here, but there was a huge bubble in housing and in other things in Southern Europe, which led to their costs and their prices getting out of line. So right now you have Spain is probably 30% too expensive relative to Germany. Mm -hmm. um, that needs to come down, but if it comes down through deflation in Spain, that's devastating. That means years of very high unemployment. It also means that the burden of their debt 
becomes ever worse. If instead a significant part of it takes place not through deflation in Spain, but through inflation in Germany, the Germans won't like it, but that's probably a much more feasible solution. So a higher overall rate of inflation in Europe turns, it's still going to be painful for Spain, it's still going to be painful for Italy, but it turns it from being pain that will kill their economies to pain that might be tolerable. Plus, overall, uh, a lot of debt was taken on. Uh, a little bit of inflation reduces the burden of that debt everywhere. Uh, this has been the way we've gotten out of a lot of debt problems in the past. So inflation helps there, too. And that, that's the reason why we could use a bit more inflation, too. But the, but the Europeans, crucially, they cannot make this adjustment. If the, if the European Central Bank says that overall European inflation is going to be below 2% for the next five years, then that's the end of the Europe. This thing cannot survive with that low an inflation rate. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. To give you a sense of how the Democratic Party sells out to the bankers, to the financial industry, etc., let me give you some numbers. So Larry Summers is, of course, a former Treasury Secretary for President Bill Clinton and the top economic advisor for President Obama. Now, what did he do in the meanwhile? Yeah, he ran uh, Harvard for a while, president of Harvard, but he also got stinking rich. And how did he do that? Well, he did it by giving speeches and being a consultant for Wall Street, for financial companies. In fact, the year that he was going into the Obama administration, he had to give in his tax returns for 2009, and we found out exactly how much he made. In fact, that year alone, he made $7.8 million, the year prior to joining the administration. Okay, so how did he make it? Well, two different ways. One, uh, he got $5 million from a company called D.E. Shaw, that's a hedge fund. Now, are you ready for this? This is my favorite fact. He worked one day a week. You get $5 million for working one day a week. You know why? Because they don't care about you working. There's no work. It's not like, hey, Larry, what should we invest in? No, 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 you're being bribed. Because you were in the Clinton administration, if Obama wins, everybody thinks you're going back into the Obama administration, and that was the correct calculation by D.E. Shaw. So they need their man to go inside that Washington and do everything they need him. So they pay him a bribe for working one day a week. What a joke. And then how about speeches? Oh, speeches galore. Goldman Sachs, etc. On one day on Goldman Sachs, for one speech, he got $135,000. This isn't the president or anything. This is just a, you know, basically a staffer, a high-level staffer. But, okay, how much did he get for overall for speeches in that one year? $1,729,000. Boy, he, people must think he says the most interesting things. They don't give a damn what he says. 
To them, at least, they care what he says once he gets inside the Obama administration. And what did he tell the president? Don't regulate the banks. Don't do it. Let's do fig leaf reform. Let's do this thing called you know, Dodd-Frank, where we pretend to do reform, but we have no check on derivatives. We have no check on leverage. The deregulation that Larry Summers pushed through at the end of the Clinton administration is totally protected. Oh, they got their money's worth with Larry Summers. By the way, how much did Larry Summers have in total? 17 to 39 million dollars. Now wait a minute, here's a guy who worked in government and as a professor and as a president of a, it was, how did he get 17 to 39 million dollars? <laughs> he got, he saved? Yeah, not likely, JR. No, I don't think he was just saving. I believe it was going like, uh, who would like to bribe me? I'm going back into government at some point. It, Matt Stoller wrote a great piece about this in regards to President Clinton, Rahm Emanuel, etc. And his point is great. He's like, look, what you do in office in the beginning isn't as nearly as relevant to these politicians as what they do when they're out of office, or how they get paid when they're out of office. So it's okay to lose an election. He, he had a great analogy. The, the time that you're in office is like the regular season. Ah, you try hard you know, to suck up to the guys who are giving you money, etc. But you don't want to get hurt because the real playoffs is when you leave office. And the perfect kind of guy are guys like Larry Summers and Rahm Emanuel who are in office, get out of office, get paid, bribed, and then come back into office. Those guys are the most valuable. Speaking of which, Rahm Emanuel, he was in the Clinton administration just like Larry Summers, leaves in 2000 obviously, comes back in as a congressman in 2002, in those 12, two years in between. You know how much he made? $12 million. Working very hard. Guess which industry gave him the 12 million? I hope you're sitting. Turns out it's the financial industry. Huh. And it turns out when Rahm Emanuel became the chief of staff for the Obama administration, he also didn't really want to regulate the banks. Wow, golly gee, Willikers, what wild coincidences. Well, how about the guy who authorized the deregulation in the first place? Two huge bills, one at the end of 1999, the other one at the end of 2000 during the lame duck session, the Commodities Futures Modernization Act. Well, the big bubba there was Bill Clinton. He's the one who signed off on it, right? So how much did Bill Clinton make after getting out of office? Again, a politician for his whole life, he didn't make money being a politician. Gets out of office, $80 million. Now you might say, hey look, he's a former president, he's gonna write a book, I get it, he does speeches, etc." No, no, no. A great chunk of that comes from speeches that Bankers can't wait to hear, oh golly gee, Bill Clinton, what do you have to say? That is so interesting. By the way, is Hillary Clinton running for president again? Right? And she lost the presidency, but you know what? She's the, at the State Department now, obviously the head of it, etc. You think Bill Clinton is not relevant in democratic politics or politics overall? You think getting his blessing isn't relevant to your bottom line? Let me give you just some of the speeches that Clinton made. February 5th, 2001, $125,000 from Morgan Stanley. Um, Credit Suisse, uh, a few weeks later, $125,000. In uh, 2004, $250,000 from Citigroup, $150,000 from Deutsche Bank. Goldman for two speeches in the same year, $300,000. In 2006, $150,000 from Citigroup, twice. Then Lehman Brothers, then Mortgage Bankers Association, then National Association of Realtors. In 2007, Goldman again, twice. Lehman, Citigroup, Merrill Lynch. Every time, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You think they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart because they really think Bill Clinton was a great president? No, they're paying him off. Doesn't make Bill Clinton a bad guy. 
It makes the system systematically corrupt. So when these guys know that they either got already or are about to get millions of dollars, whether they're Democrats or they're Republicans, they're gonna play ball. And look at Cory Booker, right? Cory Booker has already gotten you know, at least $565,000 from Wall Street uh, for his campaigns. He's gotten money in other ways. He's on the same boards with them. He's friends with them. They're in the same circle. They're all in the rich New York, Washington circle, right? And then you think when Cory Booker leaves office that he's gonna go be a high school teacher somewhere? Oh, no way, no way. When Cory Booker gets out of office, he's going straight to Wall Street and cashing in. Not because he's a bad guy, it's just that's the way the system works. And if they were gonna hand you millions of dollars in bribes, are you sure you wouldn't take it? And of course they feel better because they don't think it's bribes. They're like, what, 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 these are the rules, everything is legal. I haven't done anything wrong, I'm just feeding my family. But in the meanwhile, the banks got deregulated, they destroyed the economy, we lost millions of jobs. But you know what, that's collateral damage. No, I don't know if it was deregulation or overregulation. I don't know anything. All I know is I'm gonna do what the banks told me to do because I get paid to do that. That's the reality of politics. And it applies to Democrats almost as much as it applies to Republicans. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Bob McDonald, who is the Republican governor of Virginia, is giving President Obama some credit for Virginia's economy. This is when on Sunday morning he was on CNN State of the Union and it was so begrudging. Like he, he, you could see him pain to have to admit it, but it's surprising that he even went this far and said, well, yeah, you know, the stimulus did, it, it was temporary and it's not a long-term solution, but it, it did, did do something. It did have an effect. Let's take a look at what uh, Bob McDonald said. McDonald, it's hard to, to it's McDonnell. Yes. That's really the, the correct name. Thank you, Lewis. President Obama at all for, for the good fortune well, uh, that Virginia has? He's done nothing at all to help you all? Well, I'm going to ask you, what would you point to that would lead you to uh, say that that unemployment? I'm, the only thing I can say is he had a seven, uh, he had a, nearly a trillion dollars in stimulus, and that was one-time spending. Did it, Did it help? help us in the short run with uh, health care and education spending to balance mm -hmm. the budget? Sure. Does it oh. help us in the long term to really cut uh, cut the unemployment rate? I'd say no. Okay, so uh, courtesy of Huffington Post politics on that video there, Lewis. Uh, so, so basically, he's saying, yeah, you know, it, it did do something. It actually helped with health care and education and spending to balance the budget. But long term, it's not going to cut the unemployment rate. So it's interesting to me that he is going off message. Most Republicans uh, sticking to absolutely 
no positive effect from this, just nothing, nothing at all. He's not really saying anything crazy, but even getting this from him is something, I think. Right. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this just supposed to be a short-term solution? Yeah. I mean, the stimulus was not supposed to be a long-term solution. I guess he's admitting that the stimulus did exactly what it was supposed to do. It was a short-term, quick solution. He's kind of being disingenuous because he's he's making it seem as if this is supposed to be a long-term solution. Well, let's talk about, he refers to the unemployment numbers, and I thought it would be interesting just to compare some unemployment numbers between uh, Reagan, Bush... Uh, 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 even um, e even Romney, who saw an increase in unemployment while he was governor here in Massachusetts, under uh, Ronald Reagan, unemployment hit a maximum of 11.4 percent unemployment. Okay, now under Barack Obama, we were almost a full point lower than that at the highest point. That's not being mentioned. It, it, and again, we're not saying Barack Obama is an economic genius. I'm not saying anything other than presenting facts to you that you are probably not getting which would be interesting facts to know to me. So, for example, when we hear about record high unemployment under Obama, still a point lower than the highest unemployment that we observed under Ronald Reagan. Uh, January of 1985, 8.0% unemployment. That's the end of Ronald Reagan's first term. Very similar to now. Now, at the time, Republicans weren't saying, look at this embarrassing 8% unemployment rate. It's a reason to get Reagan out. No, they weren't saying that, but they are saying that now with the same unemployment rate under President Obama. Interesting. Right. Well, I mean, what, what, you, what they talk about is a high unemployment rate. They don't talk about uh, the reduction. Well, let's get to the reduction. That's yeah. the key point. Lewis, an expert on reductions of all kinds. We saw a 15.9% increase in unemployment during Ronald Reagan's first term. Okay, 6.9% unemployment at the beginning. 8.0% at the end, that's 15.9% increase. Let's look at George W. Bush. We saw a 69% increase in unemployment under George W. Bush. 5.3% at the beginning and 9.0% at the end. 69% increase. What do you think the increase has been in unemployment during Barack Obama's first term, Lewis? Increase in unemployment? Zero? Ah, well, it was a trick question. We've seen a 9.9% reduction in unemployment under Barack Obama since March of 2009, we see uh, a 9.0 down to 8.2, a 9.9% reduction. So if we are going to take advice from the same Republicans who thought Ronald Reagan deserved to keep his job, who thought George W. Bush deserved to keep his job, and say for the same reason we are going to get rid of Barack Obama, Let's look at the numbers, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be bamboozled by what you're seeing out there. Do not be bamboozled. And this is totally separate from the kill list, the drone strikes, expansion of presidential powers, which I'm very critical of the president on. Again, this is just trying to inject some fact into what we're talking about here. So we're not just throwing around nonsense. Jobs. Obama's bad for the economy. Let, let's look at some numbers, Lewis. Yeah, but like we talked about before, people don't like nuance. No, well, this is not nuance. This well, is in a way, Reagan is. unemployment up, Their Bush numbers. unemployment <laughs> up, Obama un unemployment down. Who wants to Let's get rid of Obama. Who wants to look at all these numbers? The, it, single digit numbers are confusing, aren't, aren't they? Maybe I, I should have presented it without the decimal point. I should have just said about 11% up under Reagan, about 70% up under Bush, about 10% down under Obama. Maybe Bush, it's Bush up, Obama down. Decimal points, David Wynn Miller would tell us, decimal points are how the government controls the people through the use of punctuation. You know, he, he might be onto something. 
uh, uh, President Obama should just turn himself into a prepositional phrase and just avoid the issue of taxes altogether. He should turn himself into a decimal point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that would do. But no. <laughs> it would be strange. It would yeah. be a strange uh, presidency. The State of the Union addresses would really be weird. <laughs> You're not kidding. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Bradley Herring. Conservatives are testing out a new talking point this week, claiming that President Obama feels resentment towards the private sector, and thus is slowing the economic recovery on purpose. All of this despite the fact that under the Obama administration, the private sector has added millions of jobs to the economy. The, the private sector, as far as Barack Obama is concerned, is where all the unfairness is. It's where the lack of social justice is. It's where the immorality is. The private sector is where all this, uh, this phony American exceptionalism is. The private sector is what Obama thinks he's got to apologize for to world leaders. The private sector is where all the crime takes place. The private sector is where all the discrimination takes place. The private sector is where all the racism is. The private sector is doing just fine. He says that with a smirk. He says it with resentment. Folks, uh, because it is my, um, another one of my old chestnuts is, of course, uh, the misinformation about Social Security. Alan Simpson of the Simpson-Bowles letter, you'll remember there was no commission report. The commission report never uh, reached the level of being official because it needed 14 out of its 18 commissioners to sign off on it. They didn't. So there was never an official report, just the... Simpson Bowles letter, just two old anti-Social Security guys writing a letter about how Social Security should be cut. Of course, old Grandpa Simpson has been um, been out there calling people who get Social Security teat suckers and greedy old windbags or something like that. So apparently, uh, I guess it was, uh, I think this is from the L.A. Times, maybe the... Uh, had challenged Simpson on all his misstatements. And Simpson sent a, uh, an email responding to a series of posts that the LA Times did criticizing Simpson's, what they say, error-rich take on the nation's preeminent social insurance program. Michael Hiltzik uh, writes, responding to all of Simpson's assertions would take a tome. It's like a big, big series of books. So we'll simply address two of his main points, that Social Security was never designed, quote, as a retirement system, and that the original bill's drafters deliberately set the retirement age at 65 because life expectancy in 1935 at the time of enactment was 63. In other words, Simpson says it was designed from its inception as a ripoff. He issues the following challenge to the LA Times. When you, when you find the word, quote, retirement in your vast research, I'm going to do it in my Simpsons sort of old man, either uttered by Labor Secretary Francis Perkins or Edwin Witte, the head of the Committee on Economic Security appointed by Roosevelt in 34, please share it with me. And the Times obliges. 
In which testimony before the House and Ways Means Committee on January 21st, 1935, he said, referring to the Social Security bill, the annuities payable under the section contemplate an annuity on retirement at the age of 65 or over. Before the Senate Finance Committee on January 30th, Whitty describes, uh, Whit, I don't know how to pronounce it, described benefits as being, quote, based on the record of prior contributions when retirement age is reached. The report on the economic security, uh, the foundation stone of congressional debate, defined Social Security's retirement component head-on to meet the problem of security for the aged. We suggest annuities all to be applicable on retirement. The record is replete with references by Perkins, Witte, and the Senator's representatives to old age pensions. And the Times asked, could Simpson really not recognize an old age pension as an essential and defining component of our retirement system? Remember, Alan Simpson is an old coot, and he really hates it that 60% of Americans rely on Social Security for over 50% of their income in retirement. 40% over 80% of their income. And then there's this old chestnut about life expectancy. I've discussed this many times before. It bears repeating so you never forget it. In his email, Simpson again misinterprets life expectancy statistics and their bearing on Social Security. To set the record once again, straight, says the LA Times, the life expectancy at birth was, 19, was 63 years in 1930s, or at least 1939 to 41. It was 63.62. Longevity at birth is highly sensitive, according to the LA Times and any statistician, to infant and youth mortality rates and is not relevant to the fiscal health of Social Security or to the program's original features. Why? Because if you die at birth or you die at age 10 or you die at age 7 or you die at age 15, you are not involved in the Social Security program. You don't pay into it. You'll never take out of it. So the LA Times reminds us that it's life expectancy at age of 65 that's the most important longevity factor for Social Security because it defines the lengths of one's retirement and therefore one's lifetime as a Social Security recipient. And I would add, as someone who pays into Social Security. In 1939 and 41, those who were already 65 had an average life expectancy of 77.8 to grow to 77 years, let's call it 78 years. For all Americans, that average has risen by a little over five years in a span of seven decades. But those gains are not distributed equally. Black males, for instance, have gained only about two years of life expectancy from 65 in the same period. Anybody in the bottom half of the income distribution has gotten virtually no gains in life expectancy. The life expectancy has come on the upper end. And if you really want to means test, then simply raise the cap. End of story. We never have to discuss it again. And really, after 70 years as a society, 
Are we really going to penalize people for having an extra year or two of retirement without living in poverty? It's absurd. It's absurd. The, the notion is absurd. Yet, relatively speaking, how much larger is our defense expenditures relative to the rest of the world? Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. More evidence for what you already know. You got less money now than you've had in years or even in two decades. According to government stats released on Monday, the median family in America in 2010 had a net worth of $77,000, almost 40% off from 2007 and back to where it was in the early 1990s. This is a direct result of the Great Recession and its toll on homeowners, all caused by the unregulated gambling on Wall Street. And this falling net worth, along with falling incomes, is what's fueling the bitterness and the envy that mark the middle class today. Rather than direct their ire at Wall Street or at the top 1% or 0.1%, a lot of people are actually focusing instead on the folks that are just one rung ahead of them on the ladder. That's what happened in Wisconsin last week, where too many people bought the argument that public employees didn't deserve decent health benefits and pensions, even though none of these public workers was getting rich, much less filthy rich. People should be looking to those at the top of the ladder who, after all, have sawed off several rungs between them and the rest of us, but for some reason, they're not. This divide-and-conquer strategy is quite a trick to pull off, and it's how the ruling class rules. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. There's a monster growing in our hands. Rest up on the wicked things we've said. A great divide between us now. Something we should know. There's something American workers must get at least as much paid vacation as the Chinese slaves who make their iPhones. <laughs> Did you know that 138 nations mandate vacation time by law? But one of them isn't the Republic of Here. In England, you get 28 paid vacation days a year. In Switzerland, you get 20. In Sweden, you get 25. In Greece, you get infinity. <laughs> 
Now, as schools let out and vacation season arrives, maybe we should take a minute here to reflect on how it's possible that a nation so lazy that we invented the heated automobile seat. Because who has the energy to make body heat come out of their ass? <laughs> Can also be the only real country where no one ever gets a day off. Here's something I've noticed when I visit our national parks. Everyone there is German. Or Canadian or Japanese because they have the time to go to our parks and we don't because because our government requires zero paid vacation days in France they get a minimum of 30 which is why French men always look like they've just been blown Even tiny, impoverished, war-torn Sri Lanka guarantees 28 paid vacation days. Don't Americans deserve a shot at the Sri Lankan dream? <laughs> China. China gets 10 days. The people who make the world's electronics while a soldier pokes them in the back with a bayonet and screams, faster, faster, treats its workers to more time off than we do. Have you ever been to Europe in the summer? around lunchtime, and suddenly you look around and think, hey, wait a minute, where'd ever fuck everybody go? <laughs> Sorry, American, it's siesta time. Now excuse me while our entire nation has sex in the afternoon. <laughs> and Americans look at this and think it's weird without realizing we're the weird ones. They have the right idea. The Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not work consumerism and the pursuit of profits for Mitt Romney's investors. And if, and if we're the greatest, most exceptional country in the world, how come we're not having sex in the afternoon? Because that's not how we roll, even though we're the correct shape for rolling. No, most Americans get two weeks vacation, unpaid, which they often don't even take because they're too afraid their job won't be there when they get back. Our politicians love to brag, the American worker is the most productive worker in the world. Yeah, because they work scared. That's why a majority don't even take all of the few vacation days they get, because you don't want to seem less valuable to your boss especially since we live in the only big boy country where losing your job means also losing your health care. And then you won't be able to get the Prozac that helps you forget how depressed you are about having no free time. I mean, for God's sakes, having to cram an entire year's worth of relaxing into two weeks is more stressful than the goddamn job. You might as well stay home, sit in the baby pool and snort bath salts. So, in conclusion, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Bill, isn't mandatory vacation time the kind of thing your union used to fight for? To which I say, union? You mean that old hall where workers used to meet and fight back? That's a Panera Bread now. From its humble beginnings, our union has grown. So no working person needs struggle alone. But no gain that's been made has been made without cost And together we'll see that no gain's ever lost 
Take a look at those countries where workers aren't free. If it weren't for the unions, where would we be? It's our unions, our union that defends our rights. But our unions as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me. So stand up and stand by our union. Now, you remember we had the budget reduction deal, and we had $1.2 trillion in cuts that are coming, including half from the Pentagon. Well, uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, the Republicans are 100% against that. And that was the whole point of doing the super committee, because they knew the Republicans wouldn't want to agree to that. So they would figure that they were going to get a real uh, compromise. Now, the Republicans refused to compromise. So those cuts were scheduled to go through at the end of this year. But they're not going to happen anyway. And in fact, the Republicans probably comp didn't compromise because they knew in the end the Democrats are in the back pocket of the defense contractors as well. So, uh, in fact, as we get closer to that date, everybody in Washington is rebelling. No, 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 we can't do this. We can't do the sequester. That means defense is going to be cut. In fact, there's now a group of bipartisan lawmakers, of course, 30 of them that get together, and they're led uh, by the Bipartisan Policy Center. And all this bipartisanship agrees that, of course, we should take the money from the middle class and not from the defense contractors. How shocking that Washington would agree to that bipartisanship. Now, it's led the Bipartisan Policy Center by uh, Senator Pete Domenici. He's a former senator from New Mexico, National Security Advisor General James Jones. But I'm sure he's not taking any defense contractor money. And uh, former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman, I'm sure he's not taking any money from uh, the agriculture industry and, uh, and all the major corporate powers as well. So uh, here is how The Hill describes it, because uh, apparently the media is going along with this just as much. Of course, they always do. Carlo Munoz is writing a terrible article here for The Hill, completely from the perspective of the sellout politicians and the defense contractors in Washington, D.C. Here's what uh, it writes, quote, Automatic reductions would put the department, meaning the Defense Department, in a nearly $1 trillion hole. A situation that top U.S. defense officials claim would break the back of the military. Okay, now laugh along with me. First of all, these reductions are a reduction in the growth of the Defense Department. They're not even taking anything back. They're not saying, hey, you know what, let's say your budget is a trillion, now it's going to be $800 billion. No! No, this is a reduction in the growth of the Defense Department. A one trillion dollar hole. What? And it's an imaginary hole from what you thought you were going to spend. Well, you've already done an outrageous amount of spending and you want to do even more, right? And then break the back of the U.S. military. Are you kidding me? You tell me our Defense Department and our Pentagon is so weak that if we don't continue to increase it at an enormous rate, that all of a sudden its back will be broken. What a lie. What a load of crap. How could any self-respecting journalist write that as if it's true? Oh, no, no, I'm just quoting defense officials. That's the whole tone of the whole article. Oh, my God, everybody panic and do whatever the contractors say. Here's quote number two. Uh, the massive planning and preparation needed to implement the cuts would tie up the service and department personnel for months and could essentially bring the U.S. military operations to a halt. Oh my God, the whole thing's in danger. If they had to do a couple of months of planning for the cuts, well, then it, we couldn't fight any of the wars. We would be defenseless and Canada could invade at any moment. What a joke this is, man. This is how they try to deceive the American people and this is how the media plays along. 
And then, uh, well, don't worry though, the Republicans have a plan for how to avoid those defense cuts. And The Hill explains, quote, a House GOP plan pitched uh, in May leaned heavily to cuts to social welfare programs to stave off automatic defense spending reductions. In other words, of course we're not going to cut defense. We're going to cut the middle class. And that's, it's okay. The House GOP has agreed to it. And they're so powerful. The Democrats couldn't possibly argue with them. So, and we have a bipartisan group of former senators who are making a ton of cash who all agree, yes, funnel the money from the middle class and into the hands of the incredibly rich defense contractors. So if the press and uh, all the people taking corporate cash agree, well, then it must be the case. Now, uh, here are... Here's another article now from the Financial Times about the fiscal cliff. Oh my God, if we did the defense cuts and then we did sp other spending cuts and then we took away the tax cuts from the rich, well, we would have be facing a fiscal cliff. And you know what happens if we fall off the fiscal cliff? You balance the budget. But wait a minute, I thought all you bipartisan guys wanted to balance the budget. Well, if we do nothing at the end of this year, we will actually go a tremendous way towards balancing the budget. We would save trillions of dollars. And look, it would take away tax cuts for the middle class as well. But I'm willing to do that because I actually care about balancing the budget. These guys are charlatans. They never cared about that. All they care about is the redistribution of wealth from the middle to the very, very top. In fact, as the Financial Times goes on to explain, in the beginning they talk about language about, oh, how it would hurt everybody in the economy. Then they get into the specifics and they tell you who it actually hurts. Here we go, quote, among the most aggressive in pushing for a deal are defense contractors who would bear the brunt of the planned cuts to the Pentagon budget. Oh, you don't say. So it turns out they're the ones that are concerned. Of course. And then we continue. Medical providers would also be hit hard by the automatic cuts. Oh, so it turns out the healthcare industry also lobbying to make sure those cuts don't go into place. Well, well who are the third people who would be concerned? Well, companies that pay large dividends who would be slammed if the tax rate on dividends rise is scheduled from 15% to more than 40%. And this is James Politi writing for the Financial Times. So it turns out, wait a minute, it doesn't affect the general public, it affects these companies and how much they make. That's why everybody in Washington is so concerned about the fiscal cliff. But they're not done yet. And who does it affect finally? Quote, but financial services companies also have a huge amount at stake. <laughs> of course! That's why Washington is in a panic. We might accidentally balance the budget and actually have the financial companies and the defense contractors and the healthcare companies actually pay their fair share. And nobody wants to do that. And dividends, that's for all the multinational corporations. No, 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 it's a fiscal cliff. No, no, don't do it. These frauds. Okay. Uh, now, a bank lobbyist has this great quote that explains to you how little they care about the American public. Now they're saying the problem is this thing's happening at the end of the year and at the end of the year we have an election coming up right now but why is that a problem? Because if what you're saying is true, if what all the sellout politicians are saying is true, if what the Washington media is saying is true, well then the American people would be on your side, right? They would want to avoid a fiscal cliff, etc. No. The bank lobbyist says, quote, it's really inconvenient to be doing, doing this during an election. Now it's inconvenient because the American people are not on their side. They do want 
uh, fiscal discipline. They do want a balanced budget. They don't want extra tax cuts for the rich. They don't want the defense contractors to get even richer. On and on and on. And they certainly aren't in favor of the banks getting even more uh, tax benefits. So that's why, oh, it's inconvenient to have, it's such an inconvenience to have a democracy and have elections where people get to decide, golly gee, couldn't we rob them at a different time? This is so inconvenient. And then finally, uh, Chris Kruger is with the Guggenheim Partners, and he gives you a, a great sense of how they know they're trying to deceive people and the face you got to put on it. So, quote, if you're going to build a fiscal cliff coalition, I'm not sure you want the banks to be the face of getting something done. You want Warren Buffett or Jeff Immelt or the railroads. In other words, ah, it's obviously to the for the banks, we are the banks, we're the ones organizing this and all the other huge uh, companies, but we don't want to say that. Instead, we want to trick people because we have an inconvenient democracy coming up, right? Elections coming up. We've largely bought it, but we're not 100% sure yet. So let's get somebody like Jeff Immelt, who is the head of GE, who, by the way, GE avoids more taxes than literally anyone in the world. But he's the head of uh, a group that an outside group that advises President Obama on what to do and GE they bring good things to life they're a good company with good American jobs Shh, don't tell anybody that they've actually shipped those jobs abroad Shh. okay but Jeff Hamilton well you have to trust Jeff Hamilton he's bipartisan he's part of the president's commission a very important commission to create jobs in Indonesia so you bring Jeff Hamilton or someone like him out there and they go oh fiscal cliff Terrible. No, Democrats and Republicans agree. Let's give more money to all the really, really rich corporations and make sure where we're going to take it from, as the House GOP told you, we're going to take it from the middle class and cut all social spending and give it to the very, very top. So when you hear about the fiscal cliff, which you will hear about a million times between now and the beginning of the next year, and they'll also call it Taxmageddon. Oh my God, it's like Armageddon, where the rich actually have to pay their taxes. Is society collapsing? What even the rich pay taxes? You'll hear fiscal cliff or you'll hear taxmen getting a million times. And it's all an attempt to rob you blind. Thanks for listening, everyone, but that is actually not the very end of the show. I have one more clip to play for you guys, but I wanted to introduce it by letting you know that my friend, comedian Lee Camp, is going to be releasing his brand new comedy album titled Pepper Spray The Tears Away imminently. It is just a few days from release, but it is available to pre-order either on iTunes or Amazon or probably other places. And so I wanted to help introduce it to the world by playing a track from that album in which Lee gives a little bit of advice on a little ways that you can fight back against, you know, our current economic circumstances and be aware he swears a lot in this clip. So brace yourselves. I mean, there's no reason to be positive. We, if we, we're still in the middle of this corporate raping and pillaging of the world that we've all just accepted like it's a black-eyed peas song. It's like, well, I guess it's going to be around for a while. Might as well pretend like we like it. Resistance is futile, you know? And, and that's why Occupy is so exciting. Occupy Wall Street is fucking incredible because there's people standing up against that shit. It's a, it's a middle... And look, whether... Right? And... and and whether it's called 
the same thing in six months, whether it's changed, the fucking floodgates are open now. It's a mental awakening, all right? We, people are tired of greed over good, of profitable pollution over people, of war for wealth, of the welfare of average citizens. And that's what it is. It's about fucking standing up against this shit because the people that caused the 2008 collapse, they're richer than they've ever been. None of them are in jail. They're, they're, now they're going after fucking teacher benefits and shit. Like, really? Teacher, teachers are fucking heroes. Teachers deal with those little shitheads all day long and they get paid less than the guy at the zoo in charge of making sure the hippos fuck. Like, really? And they go after teachers and... And, and, and they're going after unions. And look, unions have some problems like any large entities do, okay? But unions are also responsible for tiny, forgettable things like a weekend and like a nine-to-five if you have it, health care if you have it. Getting kids out of the workplace alone was crucial because they're, they're fucking annoying. and They're shitty workers. They don't know what they're doing. They're hitting all kinds of buttons on the factory floor, lopping dudes' arms off. Like, what do you mean, whoopsie? You've worked here three years since you were two. You should have this shit down by now. So we gotta stand up. There's, you know, there's big ways to fight back, like protests. There's little ways, too. Like, like if your job steals your health care, just steal their staplers. Just take, take their fucking staplers. Yeah, I might not get the liver transplant I need, but good luck affixing two pieces of paper together, you twat lickers, right? Just little shit. Streak through a board meeting or slip a photo of your ball sack into the PowerPoint presentation. You're not gonna know whose sack it was, right? Just little Oh shit, fucking, you know, uh, uh, take your family on a vacation to the oil-covered beaches of the Gulf of Mexico, take a bunch of Christmas card photos, send one to the head of BP and write, Happy Hanukkah, this oil's lasted more than eight days, it's a miracle! <laughs> this little shit, right? If you work for one of the chain franchise restaurants, you know, I know you need a job, but just, they, they fucking homogenized and sodomized our culture. Just give shit away for free. Just give shit away. You just fucking food, napkin dispensers, whatever. And if, if people, if, if the boss is like, what's going on? Be like, oh, Table 5 didn't like their trademark chicken pot pie Rooney, so I gave them a free cheesecake Rooney. And whatever the fuck. You know, you don't, you don't owe them anything. What, because they stopped calling you waiters and started calling you associates or friends the family or franchise cuddle bunnies. Yeah, it's too bad the slave owners didn't know that trick 200 years ago. Hey, we're gonna stop calling you slaves and start calling you friends of the plantation or associates or something. You know, and take your money out of the big banks that fucked us. Put it in a little bank. Put it in a milk carton. And if you want to feel like you're at a big bank, every time you take money out of the milk carton, flush a dollar fifty down the toilet and smack your grandmother. You'll feel just like you're at a big bank. Also, this works. Go into one of the big banks. Say you want to open a business account. And then when you're sitting in that little office with them, just slowly start taking a dump in your pants. Never mention it. Maintain eye contact. Just sit there. Just let the smell fill the entire place, you know? If they want to shit on America, then it's going to come right back at them. Just be a thorn in their side, a wrench in the gears, a herpes sore on their lip, right? It, it might not kill them, but a million herpes sores will make them rethink who they're fucking. It'll work. It'll work. That album again, Pepper Spray the Tears Away. Check it out.
Hi, Jay. I'm calling from Seattle. I had to calm down a little bit before I called in. I was shaking with rage after I heard um, Andy call in, the liberal cop calling in, uh, complaining that I, I wasn't even really sure what he was complaining about, that people might think that he's a racist cop because he's white and he's hurt by, or he, he's upset, irritated. Anyway, the point is that the worst thing that he could think of that came out of the, the George Zimmerman situation, shooting an unarmed teenager, was his reputation, and it was just really hard to feel any sympathy for him at all. Um, when I think about there's uh, Sean Bell, Rikia Boyd, Ray Marley Graham, all unarmed black people minding their own business and shot by cops, and no one's in jail. Most people have never even heard of these people, and so I, I'm not really concerned about whether or not someone might accidentally think that he's a racist if he's dressed up in his cop uniform. And I think most people understand that most cops aren't racist. And those that don't understand that probably have a pretty interesting story to tell. Um, and then thinking about the stop and frisk laws in New York, where they're stopping people to check and see if they have contraband or check and see if they have weapons and they don't. And of course, they're stopping um, brown and black people kind of for no reason. I think when you when you talk about your the hate crime laws, if they prosecute the real laws, there won't be any need for hate crime laws. I think they're ridiculous. I think they are thought crime. They don't make me feel any safer. They don't really make me feel any better. It's already illegal to do those things. It doesn't matter what you think. You're not going to stop what someone thinks. So anyway, I might have to organize my thoughts and call back. But thanks for doing what you do and uh, talk to you later. Bye. Hey, this is Stefan in Ohio. I've been listening for a while now, and I was just listening to your June 18th episode, and you were talking about hate crimes. And I agree with what you said about um, increasing punishment because they committed a crime against more than one person. But I wanted to add something else, kind of a different view on sentencing. And the idea is that sometimes sentencing isn't just about punishing someone, but about protecting society from future crimes. So if you have someone, depending, if you have someone that has a certain reason for committing a crime, that can inform you about their future likelihood of committing another crime. And we take that into account. For instance, if you kill someone with your car, depending on why you did it, thoughts involved at the time or in the events at the time, you can have completely different sentencing. I mean, if you accidentally hit someone with your car because you really weren't paying that much attention, that's vehicular manslaughter, as far as I understand it. Um, but if you kill, if you aim at someone and run them over purposely, to be kind of disturbing about it, then that's murder. And if you planned it out so you know where they're going to be, then it's premeditated murder. They're likely to get license or death penalty depending on the state you're in. However, um, if you run someone over and because they're shooting at you with an assault rifle, then it's self-defense. It's not even a crime. So motive matters. And I think hate crime laws fall under this. If you killed someone because they're black, or because they're gay, or because of the religion, well, if you get out of prison, what's the likelihood that you're going to run into a black person again, or a gay person, or a person of that religion? It can be pretty high. However, if you killed someone because it was a fit of jealous rage, you may be a threat to your significant, your future significant other, or the person they're messing around with, but you're not a threat to the public in general, not just someone walking down the street. So I think in that way, 
sentencing matters because you have to protect society. Maybe you need to keep someone in jail until they can't commit another crime. If you know, as soon as they step out of that jail, they're going to shoot the first brown person they see or the first Muslim or whatever, whatever, you know, their little trigger happens to be. So I think hate crime legislation can be supported in that argument as well, that sentencing has to do with public, defense of the public, and that if someone's liable to commit their crime again, you should take that into account. Versus if it's something that's likely to never happen again, then the sentencing should probably reflect that as well. And I think that's how the system works, although I'm not a law person. That's just my lay opinion of seeing it and trying to pay attention and follow along. Anyway, thanks for a great show as always. Uh, hey, Jay, it's uh, Bernie. Um, I'm a ve- uh, veteran of the Vietnam War, and um, I happen to be, have been listening to Chris Hayes on Memorial Day just kind of randomly when he talked about the use of the word hero. I thought it was extremely insightful that not everybody who winds up serving um, is a hero, and I totally agree with that. I think it's really a shame that uh, someone purporting to represent all veterans insisted on a, an apology. Uh, I'm a veteran. I did not want an apology. I think Chris was right. That is a loaded word. Uh, very often the word hero is used to justify the next war or you know, to put poor people in harm's way and let them feel like somehow they're, they're doing a good thing when really uh, it's just, again, a, a justification uh, for the war. I think it's really uh, interesting now in our national political scene that um, we're in an effort to help um, Hispanic people. We're saying if they serve, possibly they can become citizens. And yet the people, some of the people that um, are in leadership positions like Romney, uh, he avoided uh, the Vietnam War, my generation. He was in Paris for three years. None of his sons uh, have served, and yet he's willing to say, hey, if you serve, maybe and you're Mexican or an Hispanic possi- or an immigrant, possibly we'll let you in the tent. But I think my ultimate contempt is reserved for the Chicken Hawks, the John Boltons and the Dick Cheneys and the, and the George W. Bushes that um, were way back in, in uh, that Vietnam era, my era, and found a way around Vietnam never put themselves in harm's way, and yet beat the drums of war um, on every occasion. I hope that um, those folks are called out for what they are, which is uh, people that apparently uh, seek political gain from looking tough and rough, and they're going to be rough and tough with someone else's lives, but when it comes to their life, they found a way um, to protect themselves and send somebody else in the war. So anyway, I had to get that off my chest. Again, um, your show is um, always thoughtful, and um, I do not want anyone purporting to represent all veterans to uh, criticize Chris Hayes when I thought his comments on the use of the word hero were incredibly insightful. Uh, Have a good one. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today, I just want to give everyone an update on the Our Blue Media Project. I just want to mention this every once in a while to keep everyone abreast of the progress that we're making. And so to catch everyone up from the beginning, uh, Our Blue Media is a project that is being built in partnership between myself, The David Pakman Show, and The Young Turks, and it's going to be a fundraiser platform for all progressive media, not just us, uh, but all progressive media. And it's something that we think is actually going to replace PayPal as sort of the default way for people to donate to their progressive media outlets that they want to support. So, you know, PayPal has done its job for a while, but we think that they're outdated. We think that we can do better and we can create features that can really cater to the progressive media community. So, uh, so that, that's basically the project. We're really excited about it. The response has been fantastic. The buzz about people, you know, wanting to get involved as soon as it's available has been great. And so, so we have all the confidence in the world that this is uh, going to work. We just have to build it now. And so, uh, so the, the most recent milestone that we've come to in the development process is that, you know, we've been designing the pages, like the actual pages that are going to make up the bulk of the site. And we just got to the point where, uh, you know, designs for, you know, I don't know, four to six different pages that are uh, sort of like the main pages of the site got to the point in their design that I stopped being able to criticize them or have any corrections to make. So, you know, we're like zeroing in on perfection here. And so that's very exciting. Once the designs are finalized, they go into development and they actually get coded to uh, work. So that's going to be really exciting. So that, that's where we're at. Give us a couple more months and we think they'll be up and running. In the meantime, if you go to ourbluemedia.com, there is a landing page there just to give this site a home. Uh, and uh, there's a little bit of information there about it. But then most importantly, there's uh, an email list sign up. Just if you're interested in being kept up to date on what's going on, if you want to be the first to know when it is uh, launching or uh, better yet, if you want to be the first to know when we need beta testers to actually get involved and start tinkering around with the site to see if you can break it so that we can make sure that everything is up to snuff before it launches to the general public, go to ourbluemedia.com enter your email address, and then we'll be in contact with that list as soon as we need to. So that's that, and that is it for today. I just want to thank everyone for supporting the show in whatever way you do. Of course, uh, becoming a member or uh, making a one-time donation to the show is how this show survives. So thanks to everyone who does that. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it or by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like, which you can do through the show notes on the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook or Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links on all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought I'd buy and sell black and white. You took a picture that wasn't right.